haven't had a uh, testimony. We've been having testimonies every week of someone sharing about how they came to the Lord. Um, but we kind of had a testimony from our kids today, which I thought was really cool, from their willingness to participate in the play. If you'd like to, if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn in your Bibles to the book of John. And I'll have most of the scripture on the screen as well, so you can follow along up on the screen. We have been looking for the last about month and a half this idea of rescue, stories of redemption. So that picture sometimes may be a little confusing. There's a lot of fire going on there. You can see there's a fireman there. He's got his axe. What may be harder to see is he's carrying a little girl, and she's got a little stuffed animal in the picture. And so he is rescuing that little girl. And so what we've been looking at for the last few weeks is biblical stories where God came in and he rescued people. And today the message, the title is very simple. It's the greatest rescue, the greatest rescue. Today we're going to focus on a word here in just a little bit. We're going to talk about what is incarnation, the incarnation. But let's start together. I'm be in the book of John chapter one, and let's look at verses nine through 14. The book of John chapter one, And we will look at verses 9 through 14 as we get started this morning. The Bible says, That was the true light which lights every man that comes into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And this is our focus verse here today, verse 14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. What do you think is humanity's greatest need today? Right? Do we need food? We need shelter? We need leadership? This is from D.A. Carson. I thought it was kind of interesting. I wanted to give you something to think about as we get started this morning. He writes this. He says, if God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. <laughs> if he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was wealth, he would have sent us a, excuse me, health, would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death. And so he sent us a savior. So today is the greatest Rescue. We've had different stories of rescue. Have you ever been rescued? All right. It was real interesting to sit in the jail. Uh, I usually go there on Monday nights and to hear different guys tell their stories of near-death experiences. Okay. I haven't had too many in my life near death, but I have had a couple. Uh, One that always is vivid to me was my grandma and grandpa Penn. They lived... uh, down by the lake. I was always jealous because my dad grew up and he got to go ice skating and fishing and he could ski on one ski and all this stuff. It just drove me crazy. He got that privilege. But when I was a little kid, my mom worked and my dad worked. So I would go spend my days with grandma and grandpa Penn 
And their driveway basically was about like this much of an angle. <laughs> so you had this driveway, and then you had the road, and then on the other side of the road was the lake. And one day, Grandma Penn had drove up the top of the driveway, and she got out of the car, and she left me in the car. And while I was in the car, I kicked, I say kicked, but I don't remember for sure. I may have actually played with it, but we're going to go with kicked, okay? Kicked the car into neutral, and guess what happened? Down the car went, down the driveway, over the road, and into the lake. Now, luckily, (laughs) where the lake was at that time, the lake levels, it was probably just about three or four foot deep, but there was the water in the back seat of the car. And guess who came by that day, that time, was actually the postman. The mailman came by, and he reached down and pulled me out of that car. Now, when my grandpa came home, I think he was ready to put me back in the car. But (laughs) uh, that was a time where I was rescued, right? That was a rescue for me. Somebody had to help me because I couldn't help myself. They reached in and pulled me out. Today, we want to see this example of where the Lord, the greatest rescue, is he came into this place, this planet, this earth, and he became one of us so that he could rescue us because we couldn't help ourselves, and so he could pull us out. So today, briefly, we're going to talk about this word. I hope it's not too much on you today, but the word is incarnation. You may have heard of reincarnation, but incarnation is actually this truth that God becomes a human being. The embodiment of a deity or spirit in some earthly form is how Webster defines it. Uh, From Christian theology and play language, they put it this way. Uh, In his book, The Life of God and the Soul of Man, Henry Skugel, the 17th century Scottish minister, said this, God has long contended with a stubborn world and thrown down many a blessing upon them. And when all his other gifts could not prevail, he at last made a gift of himself. And so what we're going to look at today briefly is this idea that God leaves the highest thrones of heaven and he comes to earth to be a human being to live, to die, to be risen again, that we could be rescued from our sin. So the first thing today we're going to look at is incarnation from the book of Isaiah. Incarnation, the scripture says, a virgin will conceive. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Here's what the Lord says. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now, this is so interesting to me because this book, Isaiah, he wrote around 700 B.C. Everybody know B.C., right? Before Christ. 700 years before Jesus is born, Isaiah is writing and saying, there's going to be a baby born, and he's going to be born to a virgin. And we all know that's not how things work, right? And yet this is what the prophet is promising 700 years before it happens. If you were to go back in Isaiah's day, you would see that there was a king in that time. His name was Ahaz, and he was a royal mess. He began reigning in Judah about age 20. He reigned for 16 years. He didn't do what the Lord had asked of him. As a matter of fact, Ahaz would even sacrifice one of his own sons in the fire following some idolatrous practices. He would burn incense at the high places and on hilltops and under all these trees rather than going to the temple of God. Syria and northern Israel were planning to conquer Ahaz, and so he felt like he had to go to Assyria, the most cruel of all armies at the time, 
to get someone to back him up. He conspired with a king by the name of Tiglath-Pileser rather than trusting in God, and he begged that king to come and save him from Syria and from northern Israel. He took silver and gold found in the temple of the Lord, and he gave it to the king of Assyria. Basically, he sold out his people for protection. Well, Isaiah came to Ahaz telling him that God would not let Syria and northern Israel overtake him. And he even went so far to tell Ahaz to ask for a sign. And Isaiah tells him that this sign that a virgin will conceive and bring forth a son and his name shall be called Emmanuel would be a sign to Ahaz. You guys know what Emmanuel means? God with us. Absolutely right, Diane. God with us. And so what the Lord was saying through his prophet Isaiah is, You've been looking everywhere else for someone to be your protection, but I will be your protection if you will trust in me. Well, in the midst of Ahaz's mess, God makes a promise, and here's the point. God always keeps his promise, and he fulfilled it uh, in the life of uh, Isaiah's son, but also in the life of Jesus 700 years later. And what I think it's interesting how God always has a way of delivering despite our own troubles and inadequacies. Anybody else seen that? Somehow the Lord comes through, doesn't he, in spite of ourselves. We read this today in our Sunday school, but in Matthew chapter 1, just so you can see how things follow up, verse 23, Matthew writes, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So what I want to tell you today, this passage reminds us that God keeps his promises. I want you to hear out the Lord today. God keeps his promises. Sometimes they're a little delayed in our mind, right? 700 years is a long time, right? (laughs) God keeps his promises. If God said, I will never leave you or forsake you, will he keep that promise? If God says, you will see me come again even as I am lifted away from you, is God going to keep that promise? Yes. If God says, if you'll repent of your sins and trust me as your Savior, And I will redeem you and reconcile you and give you hope for all eternity. Does God keep his promises? Yes. When you hear this Christmas season, someone singing Emmanuel, let that remind you that God will keep his promises. And so God is going to come and be born as a baby. So this incarnation, this idea of incarnation, we see is just not that the truth that God keeps his promise, but it's also this idea that God actually takes on flesh. Let's look briefly in John chapter 1, verse 14. This is where we started this morning. John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Bible tells us in John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. What is the word? Some of us have lots of words, right? Any of you guys have lots of words like the preacher up here? And some of us have very few words. Anybody like that? Kind of quiet and you don't talk a lot. <laughs> what is a, what's a word do? A word expresses an idea, right? If I have something in my head and I want to convey it to you, there's different ways I could try to draw it. I could try to, you guys, I talk with my hands a lot, so I could try to do something with my hands. But what we usually do to convey our ideas is we have words, Right? What the scripture says here is that in the beginning was the word. What Jesus is, he is the representation of God to people like us so that we can understand God. The way that we get to know who God is is through his word, which is his 
son. God is going to become one of us. John says, the word became flesh. So not to go too deep into all this, but before this time, before Jesus is born as a human child, he is God and he creates as God, but he was not flesh. But think about this with me this morning. From this point on, from the time that Jesus is born into the world, forevermore, he will have a body. Think about that for a second. That's kind of a... Jesus is going to have a body forever. And if we understand the writers of the scriptures, right, that also applies to us, that we will have a body forever. Now, thankfully, not the same body, right? When Jesus died and rose again, he received a glorious body, a glorified body. And this is the beginning of that term. And so what we want to see today is that our body is important and that God, eventually, for those who trusted him, their bodies will be glorified and redeemed. Also, I want you to know this today. I think this is so awesome. We don't think about this a lot. You think Jesus ever sneezed? Any of you guys having any, any issues this holiday season sharing germs with your family and friends? Right? Do you think Jesus ever got tired? Do you ever think Jesus was trying to eat well and there was a cheeseburger he really wanted? Right? We don't think about those things, do we? A lot of times we think of Jesus as being up so high that we forget that he was a human being and he experienced all the temptations that we experience. He knows what it is to be sick. He knows what it is to be hungry. He knows what it is to be nervous, if you will, because he has a body. So when you think about this truth, that the word becomes flesh, it reminds us that Jesus knows us. He knows our joy. He knows our pain. He knows our hurts. He knows our suffering. He understands us. The word became flesh. And then thirdly here in John, you see that he made his dwelling among us. Think about that for a second. God came to us. Could you imagine sitting in a throne room in the highest of heaven with all the splendor and all the glory and all the angels around you and everything at your beck and call and you get born into a manger, into a stable because there's no room in the inn. <laughs> That's kind of a drastic change of circumstances, isn't it, right? He dwelt among us. God loves you so much today that he's chasing you. He saw after you. And then finally here, John writes, he says, we have seen his glory. And I can imagine this. John says, we, me and the disciples, we've seen his glory. If John could sit down with us today, if we come down, have some coffee with him or maybe eat lunch with him, John would say, hey, I was there when Jesus turned that water into wine at that marriage. It was crazy. And I was on the boat that day whenever we thought this ghost was walking out to us on the water. And the next thing you know, Peter's getting out of the boat and Peter's walking on the water. I was there that day. And I was there that day that we went up and we saw there that Elijah and Moses came down to meet with Jesus and he was transfigured before our very eyes. I have seen the glory of this human being. He is God. And so if you read the whole book of John, John goes on the rest of the way to explain why it's so important that he really is God incarnate. He is God come to earth. So we see today that not only does God keep his promises, but God shows up in the flesh. 
And then thirdly today, we want to see that God takes on the ultimate humiliation. Look in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, there Paul writes, he says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself, look at that, nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Again, we're going to emphasize one more time that God came to earth. Of all the fantastic things that have ever taken place, this may be the most fantastic, that the creator of the universe, the majesty on high, made himself a child, and that has to be the best Christmas ever. God comes to earth. Let me read this from you, to you from Leith Anderson to help describe this picture of what it means that Jesus humbled himself. Leith Anderson writes this. He says, several years ago, I was visiting Manila, and I was taken, of all places, to the Manila garbage dump. And there I saw something beyond belief. Tens of thousands of people make their homes on that dump site. They've constructed shacks out of the things other people have thrown away. And they send their children out early every morning to scavenge for food out of other people's garbage so they can have family meals. People have been born and grown up there on the garbage dump. They have had their families, their children, their shacks, their garbage to eat, finished out their lives and died there without ever going anywhere else, even in the city of Manila. It's an astonishing thing. He goes on to say, but Americans also live on the garbage dump. Literally, they are American missionaries, Christians who have chosen to leave their own country and to communicate the love of Jesus to people who otherwise would never hear it. That is amazing to me. People would leave what we have to go and live on a garbage dump. Amazing, but not as amazing as the journey from heaven to earth. The Son of God made that journey and he knew what he was doing. He knew where he was going. He knew what the sacrifice would be he journeyed from heaven to earth on a mission to save the human race. That's a pretty good picture, isn't it? Would any of you like to go live in a garbage dump? None of us would, right? <laughs> but would you do it to go and show love to other people? That's what some of these missionaries did to go show the love of Christ. And that's what God did for us. He came to the lowest place so that we could know him. Let me briefly read you through this passage so you can follow along with me. In verse 6 of Philippians 2, Paul writes, Who being in very nature God. And we see what that means is that Jesus was God. He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He didn't hold on to what was rightfully his, though he could have. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the nature of a servant being made in human likeness. He became nothing Compared to what he was, he became human. And finally, found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Do you guys know what the cross was of that day, right? Uh, maybe we don't hear so much of it anymore. It's getting less and less, but there are still a few instances where we have capital punishment, where someone is executed for their crime, right? And used to be by guillotine. Remember guillotines, right, back in the day? And then in the old Wild West, what did they do there? They had their hangings, right? Um, then in our day, somebody came up and invented something called an electric chair. And now you even hear of things called lethal injections, right? We inject drugs into somebody in order 
to end their life. The cross was the electric chair of Jesus' day. Let me ask you this this morning. Let's say that I did some horrific crime and I was deserving of the electric chair. Would any of you take my place? (laughs) Preacher, I like you, but, (laughs) right? Now let's take that just a little bit further. Here's what I want you to see. Would any of you offer your child to take my place? Are you crazy, right? What does the scripture say? But God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God gave his child on our behalf that we could be set free from our sentence. He took our chair. He took our ejection. He took our place that we could be free from sin. You guys, I want to close with this one. It's a little bit long, but one little illustration here that I want you to think about. This is somebody's picture of people crying out that maybe did God, did he do enough? Does he really understand us? And this whole point of this message this morning is what I want you to know is God knows you. If you're hurting today, if you've got illness today, if you've got emotional problems today, if you've got financial issues today, if you've got some sort of stress in your life today, God knows it. He understands it because he became one of us. This illustration is called At the End of Time. So listen closely and we'll finish up here this morning. At the end of time, billions of people were scattered on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them, but some groups near the front talked heatedly, not with cringing shame, but with belligerence. Can God judge us? How can he know about suffering, snapped a young Albanian. He removes his shirt to reveal a bullet-scarred back. In Kosovo, we endured terror and shootings and torture. In another group, an aged Aboriginal woman pulls a crumpled, tear-stained photograph from her pocket. What about this, she demanded. This is my precious child. I have not seen her since the day she was stolen away for no crime but being black. And in another crowd, a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes. Why should I suffer, she murmured. It wasn't my fault. And far out across the plain, there were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and the suffering he permitted in this world. How lucky God was to live in heaven where all was sweetness and light, where there was no weeping or fear, no hunger or hatred. What did God know of all that people have been forced to endure in this world? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. So each of these groups sent forth their leader, chosen because he or she had suffered the most. There was a Jew. There was a person from Hiroshima. There was a horribly deformed arthritic. There was a Thaladoma child. And in the center of the plain, they consulted with each other. And at last, they were ready to present their case. It was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a human being. Now look at this this morning. This is what they said. Let him be born into a hated race. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. 
Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think him out of his mind when he tries to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges and be tried by a prejudiced jury and be convicted by a cowardly judge and then let him be tortured. And at the last, let him see what it means to be terribly alone and then let him die. Let him die so that there can be no doubt that he died. Let there be a great host of witnesses to verify it. And as each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the throng of people assembled. And when the last had finished pronouncing his sentence, there was a long silence and no one uttered another word and no one moved. For suddenly all knew that God had already served his sentence. God knows you today. You may doubt it. You may think, God doesn't know what I, he doesn't know what I'm going through. He doesn't know what I'm facing. Are you kidding me? He knows your very heartbeat and your emotion and your stress and your concern and your worry and your anxiety. God knows you because he became one of us. And here's the offer that I'm sharing with you that God shared with me. I accepted it not much longer after I put the car in the lake a few years later as a young boy I repented of my sins and I trusted Christ and since then my life has been completely different. And the Lord offers you the same thing this morning. If you would like to be changed, if you would like to know God's peace in your life, the first step today is very simple. It's repent of your sins. Hop down on your knee and say, Lord, I am so sorry for the things I've done. Forgive me for the things I have done. Be specific and lay them out and tell the Lord that you are sorry for the things you have done. The second step is to do this. It's to acknowledge that Jesus is the Lord and Savior. That this little baby that came to earth at this time of year that we celebrate, that he really is in control and that he is in charge and acknowledge that he will lead your life. And then finally this morning, simply surrender your heart to him. And that's something I have to do every day. (laughs) God, these hands are yours. This mouth is yours. These feet, take them where you want. Lord, this life is yours. Tell the Lord that you will follow his steps wherever they lead. Throw up your white flag and surrender everything to him. Max Lucado simply says this, if there are a thousand steps between us and God, he will take all but one. He will leave the final one for us. And that choice is yours. Let's stand this morning. It's our practice, our custom here at church. Usually after I preach a message, we want to give you an opportunity to respond. And you can do that by just praying there in your pew. You can do that by grabbing a friend and come down. We call this an altar on the front of the stage here. And you can come and pray up here if you like. But if you'll bear with us, I'm going to go to the piano and I'll play just for a little bit. And while I am playing, if you'll take some time to pray. Today, if you're not sure that you're ready to meet the Lord, the Lord that came to this earth for you, and while we're playing and while you're praying, you can say, Lord, I want to repent, I want to know you, and I want to give you my life. And he will come in and change you, and he'll turn your world upside down. Today, though, maybe there's somebody this Christmas season that you're going to see. You might see him tomorrow or Christmas Day or this week. Somebody that you're worried about and concerned about. And you could take this time as well today to do that, to pray for them, to pray that God would guide your steps and that he would use your life for his glory. So let's take a little time this morning just to quietly pray, and I'll play, and then in just a moment we'll be done when we'll finish up our service.